This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. RMT is your biggest worry in the United States. RMT meaning racially or ethnically motivated terrorism. Yeah. That and political violence are the key concerns for the U.S. right now. And DHS has issued a bulletin warning that more of the violence that took place on January 6th at the Capitol could take place in other locations around the country until the early part of this year is over. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, and this man. They were definitely, um, you know, deliberate in their actions. You, you just, you really don't know mentally where folks are. A.T. Smith, former Deputy Director of the Secret Service, join us on this program to talk about what took place, rounding up the suspects, and what motivates them. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The bulletin from DHS on Wednesday, January 27th, stated clearly, due to a heightened threat environment across the United States, DHS believes will persist in the weeks following the inauguration, information suggests that some ideologically motivated violent extremists with objections to the exercise of government authority and the presidential transition, as well as other perceived grievances fueled by false narratives, could continue to mobilize or commit violence. And Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, gets straight to the heart of where the problem lies. You do have a clear, massive violence problem from the right. Um, You have a significant part of the population who seems to not believe that this election is legitimate. And uh, that doesn't mean that all of them are going to be uh, willing and able and capable to exert violence. But we have seen um, since the election an uptick of attempts by violent white supremacist groups to recruit those disillusioned Trump and QAnon supporters. So what does that tell you? These disillusioned people being recruited by far-right extremist groups. What does that say to you? In that way, I would say correctly, as the FBI already done last year and the year before that, RMT is your biggest worry in the United States. RMT meaning racially or ethnically motivated terrorism. Yeah. Globally, of course, the picture is quite different. So if you look at the global scale, Islamist terror groups are still, uh, on the whole, far more responsible for greater acts of violence. And there's an uptick in West Africa. There's an uptick um, also coming in the Afghan-Pakistan border region with the political process 
that's going on there. There is no letting up in Southeast Asia. So in all of those, hit, you know, and of course, Syria and Iraq, in all of those hotspots, of course, um, this is Islamist terrorism, and that will stay the prevalent uh, force on a global level. So here in the West, domestic extremists are the problem. Europe and the United States um, will face an equal, if not more prevalent, right-wing extremist or RMT terror threat in the coming years. Now that we've got that part of the story laid out, we want to dig a bit further into the reason why authorities here in the U.S. are concerned about domestic extremism. And we're going to do that with A.T. Smith. He's the former deputy director of the Secret Service. We've seen a big buildup of security in in Washington. That was before the inaugural, and it was pretty massive, 25,000 National Guard and I'm sure there were thousands of federal agents and local, state, and police that we didn't see that were at work in some capacity. How long is this going to last, this massive input or influx of uh, these military and federal law enforcement officers? How long is this going to last around D.C.? Well, I I think at the time, uh, for the time being, it's open-ended. Obviously, the um, National Guard troops will um, go back to their home stations. I think the NSSE itself was actually scheduled to end on the 21st, on today. So um, there will be some level of downsizing there. As to the fencing and and so forth, I would imagine, and again, not, uh, not knowing specifically, that you'll see some of that. Uh, remain up for a while. I think there's a couple of things in the equation. Um, You know, usually uh, an incoming president will give a a message to Congress, not a State of the Union, but a a message to the joint session. Not sure if they're planning to do that, obviously, because of COVID and and other things to include the security. So I think the question of whether the the fencing comes down right away seems to be somewhat open-ended. But I think as far as the troop presence that you saw over the last uh, six or seven days, that will uh, that will end fairly quickly. Now, um, so will there be a gradual step down of all of this behind the scenes security because of the concern about others engaging in or trying to pick up where the January 6th rioters left off? Or will that come to an abrupt halt, do you think? No, I think there'll be a gradual step down with that, um, particularly the, uh, you know, multi-agency command centers and so forth. They will they will relatively quickly um, downscale, but there will be a presence, I would say, there for several days to come in one way or another. And the positive part of having an NSSE in Washington, D.C., as we've discussed before, is that all of the partners and all of the agencies Uh, are well known to each other. So in D.C., it is a little unique because they have events such as this so often that uh, every player knows his responsibility and knows uh, what is required. And the relationships are there. They personally know each other. So I think even though there will be a a step down of some level, um, probably after today, uh, the ability for these folks to reengage quickly is there. And I think uh, I think that's a positive about having an NSSE in Washington, D.C. You've um, you spent a lot of years um, dedicated to and focused on security around uh, NSSEs and, um, you know, just the, the general mission of the Secret Service. How do you think 
based on what took place on the 6th, the concern that took place after that, uh, and everything that was done during this uh, inauguration and SSE, how, how do you think that's going to impact the Secret Service's work moving forward? Because I understand there were some pretty tense moments there with Vice President Pence in the, in the Capitol. It will, and it, uh, this will have to become, you know, a part of their equation in all of the security planning, the domestic violent extremists, what we saw on the 6th. That's going to have to be addressed in a, in a very proactive way and probably in a way that hadn't been done in the past. And, you know, the Secret Service, over my time there, um, we had incidents that had to be addressed, and there is no worse critic uh, on itself than the Secret Service. With any event, they go back and they will game that out and, you know, try to determine exactly what went wrong, but more importantly, determine what we've got to do to fix that. So with each occurring event, there's a wake-up call. You know, we had a wake-up call on 9-11. In terms of the Secret Service, we had others along the way. There was uh, post-9-11 an effort to close Pennsylvania Avenue. Later on, it was E Street that needed to be closed. And then obviously, um, with the fence jumper situation that occurred in 2014, uh, that resulted in an enhanced fence uh, around the White House on the north and south side. So with each event uh, that maybe you didn't think about before, there's a wake-up call that goes along with it. And I think January 6th was a wake-up call, and there will have to be a lot more proactive attention paid to these folks that are involved in these domestic uh, violent extremist groups and what they may do. Uh, as we spoke about earlier, the inauguration was very safe. The NSSE made sure of that, and there was relatively no demonstration, I'm told, um, uh, even around Washington on uh, the 20th, maybe a, a couple of small little little demos, and uh, that was it. That was the extent of it. But it doesn't mean that these people can't rally together very quickly and pop up very quickly, quickly because we saw how quick everything occurred on the 6th. So how would this impact tactics that Secret Service use, and I might add, use very, very well and effectively, would it, because it doesn't seem to me to be that, um, it doesn't seem to me to be that um, there was any failure on the part of the Secret Service when it came to, um, you know, what they did. They seem to have done everything by the book and did it very well with, with, with their protectees up there, but how might the potential for a situation like this, regardless of what kind of preparation is underway, how might an experience like this shape their discussions and possible planning and, and perhaps changes internally at Secret Service? Well, I think one of the things that will be looked at is uh, not only the, the shift agents, as we call them, or those agents that are in the closest proximity to the protectee, but in terms of the vice president and what we saw play out that day, I think there'll be a a look at either enhancing or making sure that the uh, tactical teams were adequate. And they were, as you said, the, the Secret Service reacted uh, effectively on the 6th. The vice president was uh, put in a place that was safe and secure. At the same time, there are a lot of tactical resources or teams that are not really seen by the general public. I mean, you know, folks will watch motorcades and they get an idea of what's out there, but nobody knows for certain. But I'm sure that one of the things the Secret Service will be looking at is the tactical team or what 
what they call the CAT team, a counter assault team, to make sure that, um, you know, the manpower there is adequate. And I think it was on the six, but those are the kinds of things you want to take a look at. Uh, just like in a post 9-11 world, uh, we had not focused very much on Kimbio, and that became a high priority for the Secret Service in terms of protectees and particularly the upper, the higher level protectees post 9-11. So it goes back to what I said, an event causes a wake up call and you are always uh, more critical of yourself than others. And I'm sure that the Secret Service will take that approach to make sure that uh, anything that they can do, they will do. A.T., any thoughts that you would be willing to share with me about the the roundup of the rioters, how this is playing out? A lot of people um, seem to believe that, um, that, you know, they, they put a lot of stuff out on social media and, um, you know, and now, of course, the authorities are just working their way through it, picking picking all these little nuggets out of the information that people posted and they're picking them up and arresting them. And they're all over the place. And one of the things that seems to jump out at me is a number of these people just don't seem to be sane. Uh, some of the things that they were talking about and some of the things they were intending to do. So my th- question to you is, what's your overall view of what you're seeing in terms of the mix of people and the intentions and everything that went on up there uh, as people get rounded up and charged? Well, they were definitely, um, you know, deliberate in their actions. And like you said, you, you just you really don't know mentally where folks are. I think the good news out of all this is, um, as we spoke about, I think the FBI and other local law enforcement around the country are doing a good job in rounding these folks up. They need to be brought to justice. And I think uh, there may be some who are, are, uh, like I said, in in certain mental situations versus others. But I think there's probably a lot of them out there today that maybe got caught up in the moment that I'll bet you have buyer's remorse because they've been arrested or they've embarrassed their families. And really, I think they embarrassed themselves as Americans. So I think the FBI has to continue to uh, to pursue them and to, uh, you know, arrest those individuals that were responsible for that. Some of the people that were involved in this situation at the Capitol had clearly, when you look at court documents, had what appeared to be mental issues. But a lot of them didn't. I'm wondering what your view on just the the the, the cross section of people that were rounded up and, and are still being rounded up by authorities. What's your view on all of this is? Well, I agree that, you know, some of them may have um, some issues that need to be dealt with. But I would offer that the large majority of them uh, are just people that have fallen victim in a way to lies and propaganda uh, in order to further whatever their cause was that day. And obviously we know it was a, it was a, they were looking for a violent outcome. So while there are probably people that need uh, some sort of help, you know, in, in terms of, of mental health issues, that is true. But I think there are a lot of people out there that uh, have just fallen into the lies and propaganda. And these people, if you meet them on the street are just as average as you and I are. And, uh, you know, they're, they're among us in all ways. There's a lot of uh, information about some of them, you know, may have even come from law enforcement or infiltrated law enforcement or first responders, or they could be working at the post office or the grocery store and even 
um, you know, even in the in the military. So obviously there is a holistic look that will have to be taken now in terms of um, uh, preparing for this sort of thing or, or trying to figure out who we look for, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. Now, let me just ask, shift gears here just for a moment. Um, Secret Service does what Secret Service does. And, you know, people like the FBI does what they do, and it's slightly different based on what it is their mission is. But all of you have to deal at some points in time with tracking down people, tracking down suspects. What are your views on how to track down these people uh, or what's being done to track them down? Well, and again, that's where I would applaud the FBI. They've done a great job in investigating this case and bringing, uh, you know, many people already to justice through arrest. And obviously local uh, state and local law enforcement has helped with that as well. Um, For the Secret Service, we they have an intelligence division, obviously, and our biggest uh, concern or the Secret Service biggest concern is, you know, threats against protectees. So the intelligence division in the Secret Service lane is uh, responsible for locating those individuals who are not necessarily uh, only a threat to the country, but specifically a threat to, you know, the protectees. And so in today's world, it's gotten harder because folks can do things somewhat anonymously uh, over social media and that sort of thing. But the Secret Service has a very robust um, section that handles social media and they do a good job of tracking these folks down whenever threats like that are made, either against the protectee or against the country, whatever whatever may may come their way. And again, that has progressed over time. In the old days, if someone decided to threaten the president or one of the Secret Service protectees, they were usually nice enough to uh, write a letter and mail it in. And if they were very nice, they'd put a return address on it. So it made it easy. But today, things are much different, obviously, in, in the world of the Internet and social media. So it's a little harder. But I think the Secret Service is, is on top of that, uh, as is the FBI, when it comes to tracking these folks. And, yeah. and ultimately, in the case of the six, arresting people. Yeah, I don't want you I don't want to ask you to give away any secrets, but you know, I can recall in the 30 plus years that I've been in the Washington area uh working as a journalist, um the time when before mobile phones and certainly before social media uh were so popular that, you know, people would make a threat against the president or somebody on a, a landline telephone or something like that and they'd get a knock on the door. So <laughs> So now, That's true. <laughs> so now I imagine, you know, with the evolution of technology, so has your ability to find these people evolved, right? It has. And, and you know, social media in some ways can um, let these folks remain anonymous, you know. And, and like you said, in the old days, if, if someone made a threat, uh, it was a little easier to find them, you know, when you went to especially to a small town, usually people knew ahead of time who the people were that that might be capable of that sort of thing. So things have changed and the internet and social media has made it easy for people to be anonymous and in some ways, you know, given a voice to people that uh, that probably shouldn't have one. So just uh, a quick question about then today, just the massive number of potential threats for a protectee that may be moving anywhere in the United, in the U.S. now, especially considering what 
what was exposed on the 6th of January, just the enormous number of people willing to vent and expose their anger and their willingness to harm people, um, I think it makes it all the more important now to track these people before you take your protectee to that state or to that city or place. And just wondering uh, if you could give me a sense of how difficult that is now. It is difficult, and and that's part of what goes into the advance work. Routinely, when certainly the president or the vice president travel, there are agents that go to the location uh, where they will be uh, days, if not week, or a little more in advance. And that's where all of this information that will be gleaned through social media or just the intelligence networks um, are run to ground, or in some cases, you're certainly working hand in hand with local law enforcement in a particular town where you may be going. And those folks or those departments usually have their own intelligence networks too. So they can help you ahead of time uh, to sort of head off a problem because very often they know uh, who in you know their city through their intelligence network or their intelligence division uh, is someone that should be looked at. Now we turn back to Hans Jacob Schindler for a look at the international terrorism picture. The organizations that are primarily responsible for international terrorism, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban, how do you see their fortunes or their activities in 2021 shaking out? Um, Honestly, uh, their stock has gone up in all of the conflict regions. You do have a deteriorating situation in Iraq. You just saw the massive attack in Baghdad. You have a very much deteriorating situation in Afghanistan, whether it's perpetrated by the Haqqani network or uh, the Taliban or uh, ISPK, so Islamic State Khorasan. So you have all versions of Islamic uh, extremism and terrorism in that country or in that region in one place. Um, You do have a continuing terrorist in Southeast Asia. So for them, the last year wasn't in any way significantly different to, to, to 2019. Uh, but since they were able to destabilize further regions uh, compared to 2019, um, i.e. more in Iraq, more in West Africa, and definitely more in Afghanistan, Pakistan, there is unfortunately um, no path that I can see uh, that that will reverse now in 2021, unless there is a concerned effort again by the uh, international community to push that back, which means unfortunately, again, greater engagement in these conflict regions, which I don't think there is a particular appetite in the U.S., even under this new administration, nor there is in Europe. So, you know, these conflict regions will see an uptick in violence this year. Which of the organizations that I mentioned do you believe is the most dangerous? There was a time when AQAP, which is one of the Al-Qaeda satellites, was believed to be because of their bomb-making capabilities. Uh, Technology has, in some ways, created some new opportunities and movement for uh, terror organizations. So I'm I'm wondering, which of these organizations do you believe is the most dangerous from a tactical point of view? Yeah. Look, I mean, AQAP was the part of Al-Qaeda since 2002, really, um, that was systematically involved in international attacks. That not only the bomb-making skills, but also these continuing efforts to attack Europe and the United States made it into the part of Al-Qaeda that was considered the most dangerous for Europe, right? But I mean, AQIM 
uh, and other Al-Qaeda affiliates in the Philippines, uh, Jamma Islamia and others, did a lot of violence, just not targeted at, at Europe, the mainland Europe and the mainland US. That was AQAP. That's why it had this specific role within the network and that specific way that we perceive this organization. Um, however, if you're going away from bomb attacks uh, like Aria Grande or, or spectacularly big attacks like the, the two Paris attacks against Charlie Hebdo in the Bataclan Theater um, and look at what is the low level danger? Because I mean, if you get knifed down in the street, you're still dead. So, you know, as, you know on the individual level in Europe, it must not really make a difference on what kind of terror attack you die from. Um, ISIL is the one that is still motivating far more efficiently than Al Qaeda does via the internet, pretty much as we've discussed many, many, many times, unchecked by the tech industry as a whole. Um, it's for us to go out and conduct attacks. We've been, unfortunately, last year, fairly regularly uh, together with each other, dis discussing one or the other horrible attack that happened in Europe. The last one in Germany was only October uh, last year, where a believed de-radicalized uh, Islamic State foreign terrorist fighter uh, who had been released from prison, deemed de-radicalized, knifed down three tourists in, in, in Dresden. That is a terror attack. That is motivated by ISIL. It is not as complex and, in, you know, and, and spectacular as a AQAP bombing plot at the, I think it was the Ariana Grande concert, if I remember, in Manchester. Um, that's complex, but, you know, these three people are still dead. So uh, on, a, on a lower level, this is still violence uh, where I think ISIL is still the more prevalent threat because of their radicalization activities online. It's 2021. It is following what appeared to have been a year off for terror organizations, at least in the traditional sense, they didn't seem to do a whole lot, primarily, I think, because of COVID-19. But um, I'm wondering today what your thoughts are about what the picture looks like for 2021 when it comes to terrorism. I would not call it a year off for terrorist organizations. If you look at any of the ideological streams, um, I would more, um, I think, appropriately term it a year of preparation. Um, yes, indeed, there's been less um, large-scale, organized, spectacular terrorist attacks in 2020 than there were before. However, um, all organizations, whether it's from the extreme right wing or what U.S. government calls REMT, um, to Islamist terrorist organizations, have all moved up their operations online, tried to recruit more, tried to organize better, um, tried to propagate more. So um, they use the time really and to prepare for the time when targets are again available, i.e. international travel is again allowed, um, congregations of, uh, of people are again allowed, uh, big festivals or other things that are, are you know, worth attacking in inverted commas for terrorists are going to be possible again. So um, given that um, hopefully with the vaccines, we are looking forward to rescinding of the restrictions step by step this year towards the end of this year and then at definitely uh, more of a normal uh, um, you know, travel patterns in 2022, I would assume we will see an uptick of terrorist attacks um, once it is, uh, you know, physically, uh, uh, you know, possible again. But don't forget, we did have a couple of terrorist attacks, at least in Europe. We had Vienna a couple of weeks ago. We had uh, five actually quite significant attacks in France. Not many casualties, but I'm mean, beheading in the streets of Paris is something that doesn't occur every day. And of course, uh, very recently, you, you saw what uh, REM-T um, can lead to if it keeps being unchecked. Anything you want to add? 
Uh, look, I mean, my biggest worry, of course, is the intersection between um, a more target-rich environment when these restrictions are gone and a economic downturn, which I think, looking at least on the European economy, uh, is an unavoidable occurrence later this year or at the latest in 2022. This will create a lot of economic and social pressure and then push both on the extreme right and then in response on the extreme uh, Islamist side, people into further radicalization processes. So uh, we are looking forward to a, an inverted comma, very interesting 24 months ahead of us um, when this is all going to play out because what we can see on the online sphere is everyone is just ready and yearning to go. That's Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project. And you also heard from A.T. Smith, who's the former Deputy Director of the Secret Service. Coming up in our next program, we're going to talk a little bit more about what happened on January 6th and what we should expect in the coming months as DHS has warned more of the violence that took place at the Capitol could take place in other locations. In the meantime, if you have any comments or questions or criticisms or suggestions, send me an email at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green. That's one word at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. That's jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast. And if you're interested, follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security information, sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash alerts. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. One third of all murder cases in America remain open. He had told me that if I opened my eyes, he would slit my throat. Each one is called a cold case. The DNA evidence taken from the victim was a match. The linen rapist was at it again. Based on the hit A&E television program. A phone call is placed. One that changes a family's life forever. Cold Case Files, the podcast. If you could see the fire in his eyes, he screamed at me. You want it? Get your tape recorder out. Get new episodes of Cold Case Files every Tuesday on Podcast One, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.